Good evening, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Sure is good to see everyone here tonight. Uh, I'm thankful to be here uh, among you all. Appreciate again so much the invitation to be with you all week. I've had great attendance. I hope the lessons so far have been an encouragement to you. Uh, One of the things I enjoy about coming to gospel meetings is getting to see people I don't get to see a lot. Um, And a lot of visitors that came here surprised me tonight. John Mark and Elizabeth Ann are here. They were at Auburn. Well, I think Elizabeth Ann was. You were in, you were at the other, those other guys, weren't you, John Mark? Yeah. Uh, But they met each other and got married and uh, living here in Mississippi. And I guess I forgot all about that until you walked in the door. So uh, good to have them. And uh, Lisa and Levi back there, I've, I've known, she's got two kids. I've known that girl since she was like 14 years old. What are you doing with kids? Uh, it's just, just weird to think about, you know, but uh, her and Levi are here. Uh, thankful for them and um, long, long friends of mine and uh, very, very much encouraging to me to see them here. Uh, appreciate you all. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, very familiar verse to us says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. One of the songs that we often sing by way of invitation song is the song, I Surrender All. And this song is so familiar to it that often with that familiarity comes somewhat of a monotony, right? And and when that monotony sets in, our temptation when we sing these invitation songs is sometimes just to go through the motions, uh, sing the melody, because we're so familiar with the melody, uh, but maybe not really think about the words that we're singing, singing with the spirit and with the understanding. Uh, after all, you know, when, usually when we sing this song, it's at the end of the worship service where many people are tired and hungry and uh, ready to go home. But we are going to sing this song at the end of the lesson tonight. And I hope that after we get done with the lesson that we sing this song with a renewed vigor and enthusiasm. Because surrendering the will to Jesus Christ is that latter stage of our faith where our conviction and our trust in God begins to develop into an actual submission to his ideals and desires. It's that stage of faith from which obedience flows. Uh, It won't surprise most of us here, though, to realize that the idea of submission, or sometimes it's called obedience or works, has become one of the most controversial spiritual battles that we're going to engage in as evangelistic Christians. Because the predominant thinking uh, of mainstream denominations is that there's nothing that one can actually do to be saved. The teaching is that if there's something that you actually have to do to be saved, then that would in turn negate the grace of God. And we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking why, scripturally speaking, this cannot be the case. But have you ever wondered where that came from? I mean, where did people get the idea that we are saved by faith alone apart from any act of obedience whatsoever? Well, you have to go back to the 1500s when religious reformers were attempting to counter the works-oriented salvation that was being pushed by the Catholic Church of that era. And if there is ever a common thread that we learn in human history, it's that when we, we, when we try to avoid one ex- extreme, we typically end up jumping to the opposite extreme. And that was unfortunately the overwhelming response of the reformers of that day. And so men like Martin Luther, 
uh, John Wycliffe, John Huss, as well-intentioned as they may have been, uh, their idea in tackling the extremisms of the work-oriented religious system of that day was to suggest that salvation in Christ is solely through faith alone without any works uh, uh, coming into play whatsoever. And the various Protestant denominations that came out of that movement that were strengthened later by crusaders such as Billy Graham made salvation by faith only apart from any act of obedience pretty much a central tenet to their teaching. And they taught that the mechanism in which salvation by faith only is to be expressed, uh, they dubbed that to be the sinner's prayer, which has always been kind of interesting to me because prayer is something that you do, right? I mean, so, you know, go figure. But, but if salvation by faith alone is true, then really that would leave no room for this kind of stuff right here, would it? If salvation by faith only is true, that will leave no room for actually surrendering our will to God's will as part of the salvation process. Though Hebrews 11 and verse 6 teaches very clearly that biblical faith is a faith that diligently seeks God. And so in talking about the the idea of surrender, let's first of all tonight talk about what uh, surrender is not. Okay, First of all, surrendering and submitting ourselves to God. While a a necessary uh, thing to saving faith, it has nothing to do whatsoever with earning our salvation. But since this is something that the majority of uh, religions teach, that we are saved by faith alone apart from any and all works, surely those who ascribe to this have some verses that they stand on. Well, of course, uh, and I want to show you two of the biggest ones that they stand on. Uh, One of them is Ephesians chapter 2, primarily verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's one of the bigger ones that you'll hear from those who espouse salvation by faith only. Romans 3.28 is another one where the, the same writer, Paul, says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And brethren, one of the things that I try to tell people as I'm studying this subject with them is I believe these verses. Uh, there's, there's not a, a single scripture in all the Bible that I don't believe, so it's not a matter of choosing which ones I want to ascribe to. We, we believe these verses. But you know what else I believe? I also believe James 2 and verse 24 that says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, and so since all three of these verses are true, What conclusion should we derive from verses that maybe on the surface seem to contradict one another as these uh, verses might on the surface appear to do? Well, the only logical conclusion is that there are some works that save and some works that don't. And all you have to do is distinguish between, to, to distinguish between those works is to pay attention to the actual context. If you look at the language there in Ephesians chapter 2, primarily in verse 9, notice that what he says there is that the works that don't save are, it's not of yourselves, which is what we might call works of merit. And works of merit would be like doing good things uh, and expecting that we're saved as a result of the fact that we did these good things. And I concur with Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 that we can't be saved on that basis. Because if we were merely saved because we happen to be good people according to our definition of good and happen to do good things according to our definition of good, well, that would negate the need for the grace of God when you think about it like that. 
But isn't it interesting that if you go on to verse 10 that we did not read, we're also told that Christ created us for good works. So that's kind of interesting too. And then Romans 3.28, that, that one's even easier to me because it explicitly refers to the works of the law. That being the law of Moses, which is of course we would agree that we cannot be saved by that. That was just another merit-based mindset by which many of the Jews held themselves to while conveniently ignoring the fact that to be justified by the law meant you had to keep the entire law and nobody under that system could do that. If you could do it, you'd have reason to boast about it as Paul alludes to later in Romans chapter 4, but we can't because as the theme of Romans chapter 3 is, all have fallen short, uh, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But again, if Romans 3.28 means no acts of obedience whatsoever, why do you suppose Paul, at both the beginning and the end of the book of Romans, uses the phrase obedience of faith? In the very beginning of this book in Romans, he says, Through Jesus we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. That's the beginning of the book. At the end of the book, in 16 verse 26, he says, But now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to that same phrase, to the obedience of faith. And so those verses... Sound, uh, found in the same letter to the same people written by the same author seem to imply that despite the fact that there are works that do not save us, true faith is an obedient faith. And if it's an obedient faith, that means it's a working faith. And if no work saved, then why did Jesus say in John 6, 28 and verse 29 that believing in Him is a work? He says, what sh they asked him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You, you see, the idea of faith alone that, that is propagated, it just simply doesn't add up to what the Bible teaches. Here's the deal. Merit-based works do not save. The works of the law of Moses do not save, but to surrender our will to God, when that surrender stems from a heart of trust, motivated by love, that has nothing to do with meriting or earning a thing. Because surrendering to God is coming to Him not on our terms. Surrendering to God is coming to Him on His terms in full acknowledgement of our inability to live up to His standards, which therefore rightfully can ask God, what must I do to be saved? This kind of mindset that asks that question, knowing where we came from, with a full understanding that in anything we could ever do, we are unworthy servants is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 10. There's nothing we could ever do that's going to get us out of that state right there. Unworthy servants. Unworthy slaves. The truth is, Jesus asking us to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins, when you think about it, that's really one of the most passive acts of faith that He demands of us when you consider especially the fact that somebody else is actually doing the baptizing. And so when someone suggests to me that the effort behind baptism makes that a work of merit, I suggest right back that it takes far more effort on one's part most of the time to repent of their sins. And it takes far more effort on many people's part to develop the faith necessary that actually drives saving repentance 
than it is to ask someone to baptize me in water in order to surrender all to my Savior. So surrender of the will can never be salvation that is earned when I surrender my life knowing the utter unworthy position that I have gotten myself in because of my sin. Which leads to my second point tonight, um, and that is that much of this surrendering that we do has to do with the motive behind it. And the motive behind this submission of our will should be primarily of love rather than fear. Now, that is not to say that there should be no fear on our part, and that is not to say that fear is not important in the life of the Christian. Scripture says that it is. But the fear of the Lord, as the proverb writer says, that's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, it's the attitude that begins the journey of one who is learning about the Lord. But having been schooled in the fear of the Lord, what the New Testament teaches is the driving force behind saving faith is what Paul said in Galatians 5 and verse 6 when he says that it's faith working through love. And there are so many other verses that make this contrast. If you look in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, Paul says us to us in Romans 8 verse 15 that we have not received a spirit of slavery, slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And maybe more familiar to us is 1 John 4 and verse 18 where the Apostle John says that there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And of course in John 14 verse 15, John said, if you love me, quoting Jesus, you will keep my commandments. The difference between a faith that is driven by fear and a faith that is driven by love is really the difference between the grown-up and the adolescent when you really think about it. When Annabelle is told to do something, she's like, oh boy, he called my name, I'm in trouble now. But when she has to do a chore at home, I, I bet she said from time to time, oh, mom, dad, do I have to? Because that's what little kids do, don't they, Annabelle? That's what little kids do, right, Stanton? We go, oh, do I have to? Because you want to be doing something else. You don't want to be doing chores. You don't want to be making up your bed and all that stuff. Do I have to? And what, and, and what does Angela and Matt say? They say, yes, you have to. Because they understand if you don't do it, whoops, right? You get a little spanking, right? Okay? That's driven by fear. It's not, it's not that your parents don't love you. It's not that you don't love your parents. But, but you're learning fear, right? You're learning respect. You're learning authority. That's what they learn in the Old Testament. But when Annabelle grows up, when she's 20 years old and she comes home from college and she sees mom and dad and they're a little bit older now, she's not going to come home and say, oh, mom, dad, what, do I have to? No, she's going to come home and she's going to say, mom, dad, what can I do? You see the difference? That's faith working through love. That's the difference between Old Testament faith and New Testament faith primarily, primarily speaking, okay? Surrendering our will to our God and Father through Jesus Christ is complete when we serve Him as 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Surrender of the will ultimately should graduate to a motivation of love that graduates beyond the fear and trembling that was exhibited by so many saints of the Old Testament days whose fear so often seemed to fizzle. 
but love never fails. Third, surrender of the will has nothing to do whatsoever with whether we understand why God commands us what He does. The fact that He is God and that I am man, obviously that means He's going to think in ways that are different than how I think. He's going to think beyond how I think. Just as Isaiah 55 and verse 8 and 9 says, His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Naaman from 2 Kings chapter 5, he had to come to grips with this, didn't he? He had to come to grips with this when he was told by the prophet Elijah, Elisha that in order for him to be healed of his leprosy, he was going to have to dip seven times in the Jordan River. Now, Naaman obviously had a, a degree of faith. He had the conviction of mind about the God of the Jews in order to go to him. He trusted him enough to seek out the healing. But where Naaman's fate struggled is that he just couldn't wrap his mind around the command. He couldn't wrap his mind around what he was told to do. Here was the command that Naaman was given in 2 Kings 5. Let's read beginning in verse 10. It says that Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are, are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And it says that he turned and went away in a rage. You see how angry he gets uh, when the Lord's commandments didn't meet his expectations? But you guys know this. One of the biggest pet peeves of a doctor is a person who likes to do their own doctrine, right? And here is Naaman, whom the doctor of all doctors has given him the cure for one of the most dreadful diseases that you could have of that time, and that joker's hung up on the command. He's hung up on it. And if it weren't for his servants talking some sense to him, into him, he would likely have died in that condition. So you see, surrendering the will is something that we do, even if at our present faith, where we're at, we don't always understand the instruction. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 tells us that Abraham obeyed by uh, uh, going uh, out to a place. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't have any idea. And what does the verse tell us that he did this by? He did it by faith. Think about it this way, brethren. When we get hung up on the command, think about it this way. If, if you and I were so smart, we wouldn't have got ourselves in that pickle called sin in the first place, would we? If we were so smart. But 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 tells us, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And so, so much of our surrender of the will to God is going to boil down to trusting God more than understanding God and how much we trust Him above what we think we know. Fourth, surrender of the will is not done from a position of weakness. It is done from a position of strength. Now, allow me to qualify this point unless there's any kind of misunderstanding. Because uh, I think that not understanding this point is another reason why often surrendering the will can seem so hard to do. Because you know what submission involves? It involves putting self under. It involves allowing someone else to be the final arbiter in the decisions that I make, and that's always going to be tough. Because when I do like Naaman, 
and I start questioning the, the direction that God wants me to go simply because I don't understand it, you know, we, we start thinking things like, well, this can't be right. I mean, look, look at everything that God's overlooking. And of course, we'll be more likely to think that when, than we will to actually say it. But you see, surrendering and submitting to God is not about God subjecting us. He could have chosen to do this, right? God could have chosen to save us by the tip of the sword like they do in Islam. He could have, told, he could have chosen to save us by making us all robots. We wouldn't have a choice. You know, I must obey God. I mean, He could have made us like that if He wanted to. He didn't choose to save us like that, though. No, He gave us an objective truth by which we can hear and choose whether or not we want to respond to it. And brethren, what that means is that when I do surrender my will to God, I am doing it from a position of strength. I'm doing it from a position of strength because I am choosing to do it. Why would I choose it? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 tells us why. For the love of God controls us, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Have you ever noticed the contrast in, this, in these verses? Christ's love toward us compels us to move in a certain direction. That's obedience, right? That's works. That's submission. And then it says that when we do move in that direction, we're no longer living for ourselves. And that right there implies that when we do obey, it could never be by merit. It's funny how we never use that verse to talk about how salvation is not by merit, but it's talking about it right there. It's saying there's something else controlling our obedience other than trying to earn our salvation, isn't there? It's the love of Christ that controls us. Brethren, there is no greater position of strength that speaks more highly of a person's character than for that person to recognize the utter futility of their circumstances and to therefore wholly and completely place himself under the headship and direction of the cosmic king of the universe because we are so overwhelmed by the love that he's poured out upon us. And that mindset, that breeds surrender and a submission that could never come to God thinking that he has earned one thing. And then fifth, Surrender of the will is not a conditional surrender. It can never be. It is an absolute surrender. I suppose the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 is probably one of the greatest examples of this. Um, he seemed like he had all the tools to become one of Jesus' greatest disciples. We probably would have loved for someone like the rich young ruler to you know, come into the church and say he want to place membership with us. We love that. But the Lord who knows the heart of all that we don't, knew that this young man had one hang-up that would keep him from surrendering all. And so Jesus said to him in Matthew 19, verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Surrender of the will. I surrender all. That means it can never be conditional. And that's why we sing, I surrender all. Not I surrender some. Not I surrender most. Not I surrender 99%, but I'm going to keep that 1% to myself. No, it's I surrender all. Understand, surrender is a battle term. It's a battle term. It means 
that we are giving up every single one of our rights to the conqueror. You know, when an opposing army surrenders, we throw down our weapons and, and the victor takes control. See, it's not a conditional surrender with God. It's not like the, the Knights Templar. Some of you may know this story, but uh, the, the story goes that when the Knights Templar uh, back in the medieval ages would be baptized, that they were immersing still back then, and they would be baptized, but they would hold their swords above the water. Did you know that? That's how they'd be baptized. They'd hold their swords above the water so their whole body would be above the water when they're baptized except for their sword. You know why they did this? Because they were telling God, you can have me. I'll surrender all that I got except for my sword. They were telling God who I am and how I act on the battlefield, that's for me, but I'll surrender everything else to you, God. That's why they did it. And we think... That is so ridiculous. Why would you do something like that? Yeah, it sounds pretty ridiculous to us, right? Until we replace that sword with our wallet. Or we replace that sword with some hobby or some desire, some dream. It's not as ridiculous when that sword for us is some relationship that we're just not going to part with. Some bitterness, some resentment that I'm holding on to. You see the point? Surrendering to God cannot work that way. The surrender that God demands can never be conditional. And he tells us why in Matthew 6 and verse 24. He says it cannot be conditional because no one can serve two masters for either he's going to hate the one and love the other, he's going to be devoted to the one, he's going to despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so what exactly then is surrender of the will. I want to give you three things that it is, and the lesson is going to be yours tonight. The lesson will be concluded. The first thing it is, is it's surrendering to the authority of the conqueror. Surrendering, when we do that spiritually, is turning authority over to Jesus. And here's what's funny about that. He's already got it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like we're saying, okay, Jesus, you can have authority now. Are you kidding me? He's already got it. He's already got it. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said and spoke to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Have you ever thought about that? But He's asking us regardless. Again, it's a choice. He's asking us to surrender to what He already has. He's got all the authority whether we decide to yield to it or not. But by willfully surrendering, we're acknowledging that authority and we're submitting to the conditions of that of, of surrender. And that act of surrendering, folks, it can be very difficult for people who haven't realized that they've been conquered yet. There's a book out there um, called No Surrender, My 30-Year War, and it was written by a Japanese-born soldier by the name of Lieutenant Hiru Onoda, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he was the last Japanese-born soldier to surrender in World War II. Uh, Anoda had been stationed on Lubang Island in the Philippines when it was taken over by U.S. forces in February of 1945. And just about all his, his comrades were killed or they were captured. But Anoda and several other men decided they were going to hide deep in the jungle. And while his fellow evaders were eventually killed, you are never going to believe how long this turkey held out. 
he held out without getting captured for 29 years after World War II ended. 29 years he hid deep in the jungle, ignored every single attempt by others to coax him out of the jungle. And in this book, he, he wrote that the reason that he did this, his primary motivation for not surrendering was his devout belief in the Japanese military code of discipline and honor, which meant that you never surrendered until you received a specific order that would enable you to do so. And so here's what happened. In 1974, <laughs> it's 29 years after World War II's in, in 1974, the Japanese government said, all right, this has gone on long enough. The Japanese government sent its commanding officer to Lubang in order to order Onoda to surrender. And the story goes that when Onoda stepped out of the jungle to accept the order, he was wearing the same uniform as when he arrived in that jungle, and his sword and his rifle was still in operating condition. Isn't that hilarious? Folks, if this doesn't describe many a person's journey to Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. I mean, think about it. To hold out surrendering to the authority of the conqueror of conquerors to evade being captured by the love of Jesus Christ against an infinitely inferior enemy who has enslaved us, who has kicked us around, he doesn't care one lick about us. Well, that truly defies logic too. The people out there... They do it every day. Surrendering the will to Jesus is waving the white flag of surrender. That's him coming out of the jungle there in 1974. Surrendering the will of Jesus is waving the white flag of surrender to the only authority that there is. And yet, there's more to it than that. We're also surrendering because of who the conqueror is. You know what a notice problem was? It was the same problem that we've got. He didn't know the greater blessings being offered by the ones in authority that were calling for his surrender all 29 of those years. Uh, General MacArthur was the one who was appointed to be supreme commander of occupied Japan uh, when World War II was won. And he remained in that capacity from 1945 to 1952. Uh, during that time, MacArthur and his staff uh, wrote for them a new constitution that released them from the shackles of imperialism to the freedom of democracy. And that constitution still governs Japanese affairs to this day. And when MacArthur finally left Japan after those seven years, over 200,000 Japanese men and women lined the streets to honor him. And in 1960, the Japanese gave him the highest honor that could be given to a foreign a national. It's called the Order of the Rising Sun. And all while this was happening, Anoda was mulling around that jungle for 29 years, resisting, despite the pleas of so many to just surrender. He didn't know how good he could have had it. But you know, every single country of which the Americans gained control of after World War II, they became free, thriving democracies. West Germany, under American control, became one of the foremost economic powers in Europe. But every country that the Russians occupied became virtual prison camps. 
East Germany, under the control of the Russians, became destitute, practically enslaved. They were forced to build the Berlin Wall, not to keep people out, but to keep their own people in. The communist countries called themselves workers' paradises, but they had to build fences and barbed wire just to keep people from leaving. What I'm suggesting is that it matters not just the authority to whom one surrenders. It very much matters the person to whom one surrenders. Because towards the end of World War II, the German army was rushing to surrender to Americans rather than to the Soviets. Thousands of Poles defected from the Soviet army to the American forces, though Eisenhower turned them back to the Russians to face prisoner death. Under Roosevelt's eternal shame, Stalin and communism gained Eastern Europe, Manchuria, and ultimately China through uh, just treacherous agreements. All I'm suggesting is that it matters very much the one, the person, the character to whom one surrenders to. Who is the one that is calling us to surrender? The one that says this in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's the one calling on our surrender, folks. God's plan for us is always in our best interest. He conquers us not to enslave us like the devil has done. Jesus conquers us to bless us. Talk about a paradox. And that leads me to my final point. And that is what we become once we are, allow ourselves to be conquered. Uh, back in the days of the Roman Empire, Roman galley ships sailed the open seas. And the ones who rode these ships were slaves. Uh, regardless of what crime you had committed, if you were sentenced to a Roman galley ship, it was a lifetime sentence. You would sit chained in this galley and you would row until you died. Now that death may be by natural causes, but that was highly unlikely. Most likely your death would come when the ship was sunk and you couldn't escape because you were chained to your position. Or most likely you would die from disease or from extreme exhaustion, or from the beatings that you would undertake because your exhaustion pre prevented you from doing your job. I, I imagine uh, it, that just death itself would be much more favorable to being sentenced to a Roman galley ship. I want you to consider this. I want you to imagine that you have been a slave to this Roman galley for years. And then one day, this ship is docked for resupply um, and you're chained below. I want you to imagine that a wealthy plantation owner boards the ship, comes down to this galley, and he sees you sitting there chained, uh, filthy, exhausted, disease-infested, without any hope for any kind of life outside of this bondage. And I want you to imagine this wealthy landowner, he takes pity on you. And he comes to you and he wakes you up and he says to you, I want to offer you a chance to come and be my slave and to work for me in my vineyard. Would you like this opportunity? What would you say? I can just imagine. I'd be thrilled. I'd be like, yeah, I'll be your slave. Anything to get me out of this terrible situation that I'm in right now. Any servitude would be better than being in that place. 
But then before you get too excited, your heart, it would just sink because you realize that that Roman galley captain, he is never going to let you go because you are there for a crime that you have personally committed. And so you sadly express to this wealthy plantation owner and you thank him for his offer and you say, I, I, I don't think they're going to let me do this. But then the landowner says, you don't understand. I've already taken care of the crime that you have committed. What I have offered the captain of this ship is my one and only son to bear your punishment in your place. My son is going to now row in your stead. The deal's already been made and the term's accepted. Will you now accept my offer to come and work for me as my slave in my vineyard? Wouldn't your heart just stop? I mean, the person has given his only son to go through this agonizing and torturous punishment in my place, and for, for nothing I've deserved. It's for no other reason than the fact that he saw me, he took pity on me, and he wanted to help me. And so, of course, you accept this offer, and you go. You go to work at this man's vineyard as his slave, thinking every day about that poor son who is suffering in your place. But it gets better. Imagine that as you arrive at this plantation, you begin working as his slave. That this wealthy plantation owner approaches you again and he says, I must confess that I did not just hire you to become my slave. But my true purpose is to adopt you as my son. And as my adopted son, you will receive a portion of my inheritance. You don't really have any legal right to this inheritance. But I offer it to you anyway as my adopted son because I love you. What would you think of that offer? Would you even hesitate for a second to turn it down? Well, I imagine I might hesitate for a lot of reasons. I might say to that landowner, Master, I'm unworthy of such an offer for I was once a criminal and to tell you the truth, I am still a criminal in my heart and I struggle with that every day. And you know what that master would tell you? He'd say, Son, I loved you even when you were a convict or else I would not have given my son to take your place. Brethren, that's our story. That's our story. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. God conquered us through Jesus Christ not so that we could be slaves. He conquered us so that we could be sons and to share in His Son's inheritance. And the irony, the, the, the great paradox of this fantastic scheme of redemption, you know, if that doesn't get you, how about this? Through Jesus Christ, those who allowed themselves to be conquered actually become the victors. As 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory comes through our surrender. Sounds incredible, right? I know! Think about what Jesus is offering to you. It's incredible. Can you see how surrendering to God even though it does mean doing certain things, can you now see how it could never earn us a thing? 
Not when we know who we are. Not when we know that we're criminals at heart. Not when we know where we came from, from what we've done. And especially, not when we know who Jesus is and where He came from and what He's done. And so when Jesus tells me that in order to identify with what He did on the cross to save me from my sins, is that He wants me to be baptized in water, I'm actually going to argue with that. It's a response to His overwhelming grace. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Are you here tonight and you have not surrendered all to Jesus Christ? He's already got all authority, but He's asking you from a position of strength, motivated by that love that compels us to respond to that authority in obedience to His gospel. If you believe that He is the Son of God, that He died for your sins, and if you are willing to repent of your sins and confess that He is the Son of God, we would love to baptize you tonight for the forgiveness of your sins. And likewise, if you feel that you've lived a life that has not been a complete surrender, but perhaps has been a conditional surrender. We all struggle with that. So if you feel like you need help from the saints here or, or prayers, uh, we certainly want to offer time such as this to come forward and make that known so that we can help you in the best way possible so that we can all get to heaven and be with God one day. Won't you come forward and let us know how we can help you while we stand and while we sing the invitation song. Oh, to Jesus.